Let's start recording. Yep. Three, two. Jamie, are you ready to record an episode? Talk about a movie too. Oh, because no. we're disabled. But I guess before we do, I'd like to ask of you how you are doing too. So, Jamie, how are you? Yeah. Oh, you know, I'm okay. Tell me all about your life. <laughs> but sing the whole thing, please. This would get really annoying if I followed through. I, I was watching the music video earlier this week. Uh-huh. And it's such a bad video. What, what do you mean bad in what sense? He's just like, the way he's like looking at the camera is so It's so 90s. It feels like a 90s. I don't know. It's such a good song, but the music video is not good. I feel like music videos define that particular era. Yeah. Music videos now are are like a whole other thing. It's like well, I don't I don't really ever see music videos nowadays, but they seem sort of superfluous. It's superfluous in the sense that that I, I think often people aren't trying to make like a heady movie, but I don't know. Some of the directors just throw down, and they're just it, it's it feels like a bit of a sandbox, like a playground. I don't know anything about music. Do you think we should record? We should review music videos do you think there are music videos that could fall under the umbrella of what we can record i can't think of any but that's a question to pose to our audience yeah if you guys we should break out like send us some things that aren't tv and movies for us to review that could be fun what is it are that aren't tv or movies yeah well the, the only other option is music videos and music or books or or like youtube videos or articles books are you gonna read a book <laughs> yeah if it's like if we decide that the cat in the hat is disabled i'd read mm. the cat in the hat right okay so so children's uh books children's books lots of pictures under 10 pages i don't know like i've been reading a lot of books recently but it does take me it, we'd have to if we were gonna do a book we'd have to be like let's cover this book in three months there was that one book that I had shared with you, uh, Disability Visibility, I believe it's called. Oh, that's right. Well, there are some some good disability books out there. That's a thing. Like We're probably leaving a lot of good media on the table by not doing books. It's just like our recording format is, you know, we watch something and we record the next day. And we can't just read a book together in an hour unless it's the cat and hat. I feel underqualified to deconstruct books. And I know maybe that sounds a little bit silly, but I never... Yeah, but that's the same, like, that's the same thing that I said to you about feeling underqualified to talk about movies. Well, everyone is steeped in cinema because it's baked into our culture. Like, we all watch... No, I think you're... I think that's like a projection. Lots of... I read more books than I did watch movies growing up. Well, I mean, that's because you lived in a uh, wash, uh, washing room. Yeah. Like, you lived in a supply closet, cleaning supply closet. I had a TV. Tony, is there a lightning bolt tattoo on your forehead, by the way? Um, I'm a wizard. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. When I go to Hogwarts, I actually walk. But this <laughs> is like my muggle costume. It's your muggle disguise? Yeah. Blended with all the other 
disabled goggles. <laughs> You're doing a good job blending in, by the way. Thanks, man. I'm. I feel like if I'm if there's one thing I'm good at, it's being disabled. Like I'm really disabled. <laughs> if someone's like be disabled, and like, what does that mean? People be like, look at that guy, do that. Yeah. And then people would go, I can't do that. He's a pro. Right. It's too bad you can't like make a living off of just being disabled. I mean, I, I'm trying. Through the podcast? The podcast is kind of monetizing or has the potential to monetize our disability. Uh-huh. My work is very disability-centric. That's true. It is. Yeah. But your work is not just being disabled. It is. Every morning I report to my boss. And he'll be like, how disabled are you today? <laughs> and I'll be like, not too disabled. He'll be like, go get more disabled and come back to me when you're disabled. Oh, wow. Yeah, every And morning. you oblige? No, well, yeah, but usually the conversation goes, I'm very, very disabled. And he'll go, good job. I'll give you a raise. <laughs> good job. <clears throat> so does he like dock your pay on the days where you're able to fit an extra popsicle stick in your mouth? Yeah, like sometimes he'll be like, I'm going to need you to do this by the end of the day. And if yeah. I finish it before the end of the day, he's like, you're fired. That was too fast. Wow. Yeah. That sounds like a lot of pressure to underperform. As a disabled person, it's a lot of pressure to underperform. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm okay. I have aches and pains today. So I'm a little bit less agreeable, a little bit more grumpy than usual. Thanks for the heads up. No problem. I figure it's uh, it's good to give you a fair warning. Um, is it because of anything or just that time of the week? I, I don't really know. I suppose I need to start going to physio and I have less of an excuse now that we're starting to open things up and I'm just nervous about initiating that whole process. Yeah. And it, it's like hard to, it's the ritual of getting to physio. It's I'm dependent upon my parents for that. And just there, we only have one vehicle and blah, 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 blah. There's no physio that would come to your house? I don't think so. I haven't, I need to actually look into that. My physio comes to my, you're going to take this the wrong way for sure, but my physio comes to my bed. Oh yeah? Like I'll be lying in bed and she'll just, she has a key, she comes in, comes to my bed, does a physio and then leaves. Wow. Sometimes I'm in my chair, I alternate because you know, I can do certain things better in my chair. May I ask you what your regiment of stretches is in in uh, bed with your physiotherapist? It's a lot of just like maintenance, right? So it's like we have a limited number of time. So every week it's like, what do you want to prioritize this week? So generally you should come in and put in a bunch of like popsicle sticks. And then while the popsicle in sticks mouth, are in. Right? Uh, sometimes, yeah. She just kind of, it's like a dartboard. She'll just grab a popsicle stick and throw it and see where it ends up. Yeah, it's just anywhere it'll fit, I suppose. Yeah, sometimes like, like w- my left nostril. Yeah. Every once in a while, there's a one in your ear. Yeah, in my ear. Yeah. Just any orifice, really. Well, yeah, but you're lying on your back, so there's no risk of it being anywhere where it's, you know. Yeah, it depends if I have my legs up or not, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, she'll... <laughs> she will... Put the popsicle sticks in my mouth to stretch my jaw open. And then usually like my wrist is a big one, like my driving hand wrist. She'll put a popsicle stick in your wrist? Yeah, she'll put a popsicle stick right in my wrist. 
and I just leave it there. Oh, God. And every week, she adds a new one. So I now have 300 popsicle sticks in my left wrist. <laughs> I don't think this is interesting. You don't think it's interesting? It's not worth talking about? Well, I'm curious I mean, about are your... are you interested? I am interested, yeah. Because I, I don't know... Um... Despite knowing you well, I don't know much about your overall physiology. Like, I understand your limitations and I know what you look like, but I can't really picture you moving around outside of your own chair. And I'm sorry if that's insulting, but it's just kind of true. I don't. Yeah, no, that's not insulting. I don't really move around outside of my chair. Like, you know, you know, at the end of, to bring it back to Harry Potter, Mm -hmm. when... Voldemort is no longer attached to the back of the uh, professor with the turban. I I haven't seen a Harry Potter anything in years and years. Oh, really? It, it stuck with me so much. Anyway. Do you remember the day that you said that you were going to have a technician come to your place yeah. and transpose all of the hardware off of your old chair onto your new chair? Yeah. And then I suggested that you spend the day in bed. Yeah. That, I, that's kind of why I was hoping for you to set up a webcam for all that, because I wanted to see you... What I look like in bed? Well, yeah, and, and I hope that doesn't sound like I'm coming on to you, but I am genuinely curious, because when I lie down, I'm excessively comfortable, and I really enjoy it, and yeah. it feels being upwards in my chair with my scoliosis all fucking day long, sometimes without a lot of movement or exercise, it takes a toll especially since I hit 32, apparently. And so I just like, I wonder (laughs) if you were lying on your back, like for a day, like, would you be even like a happier Tony? Because for a whole day. Yeah. For a whole day. No, I would be miserable. Really? Because part of it's just like, I'd feel useless. Like I'd feel like, you know, when you're in like arts and crafts in grade school and they give you a potato and some toothpicks and like make a person. Okay, you had some fun art classes. And that's how I look, and that's how I would be. Jeez, you really think of yourself as a potato when you're outside of your chair? Yeah, because I literally can't move. So somebody somebody will prop me up in the bed. I'll sit down in my bed up. I'll put one of those like airplane neck pillows around my neck and then just stare at the TV all day. It would be so... I don't know, I'd get bored so fast. I have, I have the attention span of a squirrel. I don't know if that's true. I would imagine it depends on what you're being asked to focus on. Yeah, but if it's like TV. What if you're what if you're in bed all day and you're with a partner that you're particularly fond of? Then we'd probably be chatting, maybe watching some TV. Okay. It's more fun to watch TV with someone because then you, use... you can like talk about the thing you're watching. <laughs> Excuse me. Can you use your hand when you're lying down? No. Not at all? Like, I can barely use my hand when I'm in my chair. I use it to drive my chair. That's it. Okay. So you do feel, like, quite vulnerable in bed? Very, yeah. Is there any place outside of your chair where you feel empowered? When I'm playing chess on the toilet? Not really. I love showers. Right. I don't feel empowered, though. I just feel, like, pure comfort. Like, a hot shower is... Like my happy place. Yeah, mine too, actually. I feel grateful that I can have a hot shower whenever I, whenever I need one. I think I'm grateful that I can't. I think I would abuse it. Maybe I wouldn't. Maybe it would get old. But I look forward to 
I don't know, there's something nice and sort of relieving about having to rely on another person and therefore on someone else's schedule for certain things that like I don't have the opportunity to even even if I could be a little bit mobile in bed because someone comes in every morning to get me out of bed I don't have the option to just be lazy and sleep in and you know not wake up someone comes in to get me up I have to get up I can't be like snooze my attendant so you feel grateful that your needs sort of impose upon you a regimen that prevents you from being lazy yeah that makes sense especially when i'm feeling a bit down you know like i went through it a bit this week where as you know we talked about it but like a friend of mine passed away and uh, i was i was feeling it and i was conscious of the fact that it would have been really nice to just kind of curl up and do nothing for half a day but i didn't have the option to do that i had to just keep going someone came to get me up then someone came to do my laundry someone came to clean my house and i had to like be on for all of those things yeah your day executed itself around you and you had to participate in it yeah yeah and i i know that they would have understood if i said hey my friend passed away and i need some space and but First of all, I didn't want to share that with them because it gets very gossipy, as you know. Of course. So I just, I'm not a person to share that kind of stuff with them. And um, it felt healthier to just keep on moving forward as numb as I was while I was doing it. How long or how soon after participating in in an attendant care environment did you learn to protect your privacy? Oh, I'm still bad at it. It's it's basically just been trial by fire. I've been burned so many times. And even to this day, I'm conscious of it where somebody I, I can feel myself wanting to to like trust or open up to certain people. And I feel the hesitation. And I know it sometimes it comes from irrational emotional places and then i also know that sometimes it comes from logical practical places and knowing when and where and with whom to draw those lines is something i still don't navigate do you feel that like when because you don't have to get as vulnerable with an attendant because you don't need like the same level of care that i do Right, you need help with like putting your shoes on or laundry or something like that. Maybe some meal prep. It's it's not as vulnerable, I'm guessing. Maybe it is. It's all relative. Do you feel like it's easier for you? Like I feel like it's easier for me to open up to a new attendant at my dinner call than it is during my morning call where I'm like in the shower getting up and partially because I'm not a morning person, but it feels like there's more of a like a natural separation for you to open up. So are we talking about like the correlation between privacy and dignity? Maybe. I'm just wondering if you feel the same things that I'm feeling. And if if you don't, like if you feel like it's easier for you to open up to an attendant, do you think there's a correlation there? Um, It's a really good question. 
When was the last time you had an attendant go? The last time I had an attendant was in 2013. No, sorry, 2015. Okay. Uh, because I lived in your building from February of 2013 to uh, November of 2015. And I actually felt super self-conscious during dinner calls in particular because um, unlike you, I never quite mastered the art of food preparation, even just the chore of making sure that my pantry and fridge were sufficiently stocked to be able to make requests of the attendants. Yeah. So I would actually experience quite a bit of stress with like planning to have all that stuff in place. And when they visited, I felt like that was a pain point of mine for them to potentially complain to head office mm. because my fridge wasn't sufficiently stocked or because I didn't necessarily know how to prepare things on my own. And so I would hold out for the attendants that sort of knew what I was like and didn't necessarily expect me to be able to pull through all the time in that way, if that makes sense. Yeah. But for you, like you love food and it's a point of pride for you to know how to prepare it in, in rewarding and interesting ways. So when they come to visit you, not only is, because when you eat, it's, we, everyone is naturally quite open and social when we dine, which is why, like, if you have a lunch hour at a, at a healthy workplace with coworkers that you respect and that you share a certain rapport with, it can be the best part of your day just yeah. to have 20 minutes with somebody you, you share cubicle walls with. But anyway, so you not only get to have that with those attendants, but they also get to see you in a different light because you might actually be able to teach them something about cooking, you know, and just to be in that sense, highly, highly competent allows you to set a particular boundary, which says that, Hey, this is my home. You are in it temporarily to help me. And you probably are not going to gossip negatively about me because I'm probably better at you, better at this than you are. And maybe that's not necessarily a healthy way to look at that, like, you know, comparing I don't yeah. know, skill, skill sets or something. But I do sort of feel like it, it was a privilege of mine to have other ways where I didn't need attendance so that they could necessarily um, cross boundaries with me, you know? I definitely connect with the boundaries part. I don't, I, I don't think that I ever think, oh, I'm better than you are at this. No, but- I... I guess that was a way that was a bad way of putting it. But like No, I know what you're saying though. It's like I'm a full person. You can see me as like a peer and like an equal and you're not just here serving me. Like it's a little yeah. bit more of a mutual exchange. Yeah, and you could potentially prepare a dinner with them that they would I often share my food with them. Yes. And that's probably you're doing that out of generosity, but you're also like, hey, this this is the kind of food that I make. Well, I have the Italian blood in me that also yeah. tells me like your food is for sharing and you must share food. There's no point in eating if you're eating alone. Um, so I, I like to share that experience. But it, yeah, I think a lot of it is for me, the boundary part of it. 
where I just, I'd feel less vulnerable when someone is simply helping me with dinner. Even though I feel like I'll feel a bit more vulnerable when I'm asking for what feels like a lot of help at dinner time. Like if I have this recipe that I want to try and it feels complicated, I'm always trying to manage that. Like I'll, I generally pick foods that I can at least comfortably talk my way through all the steps, but that don't feel like I'm like abusing the attendant, mm-hmm. um, which is something I struggle with immensely. But I was more curious with you, like, where do you... So if you feel uncomfortable helping some or getting help from someone cooking, what was the thing where you felt most secure in asking for help? I Help with preparation to get ready to exercise. I felt generally pretty good about. Oh, and is it because you're like, look, I'm, I'm like exercising. I'm a healthy person this is a healthy thing that i'm doing maybe but also because i that was one part of my ritual that i was actually able to nail at carlton some regularity in my exercise routine and managing my weight and so i took a lot of pride in that and so if i needed help in any way with physicality and this sounds incredibly vague but i you were secure in it yeah yeah no i think that makes sense yeah and I would push for it as well as like an like an a necessary as- element of my day, like an essential call, as essential to me as cleaning my apartment or I don't know, like using the bathroom privately. Yeah. I guess you know because exercise for me has always been my medicine. You know because I have issues with like you know mood regulation and depression and all that. Like that is sort of the antidote. So my confidence is there. Yeah, there are a few other things with it. Like I'm, I'm confident about my um, my academics usually. But you don't have to get help for them. No, I don't. I mean, I would have to get my books ready before leaving to campus, or unpack things and situate my desk properly. Right. You know, like remove obstructions from my work work area throughout the day. Yeah. No, that's fair. Do you do you miss attendance? Like, do you ever feel? I do. Yeah, yeah, I really do. <clears throat> because an unfortunate byproduct of living with my parents and who are also my caretakers yeah. is that the stress of fulfilling your needs accumulates over time. Because it feels like you're asking for too much. Yeah, or you're asking for help with things that maybe you should have solved years ago. So there's there are burdens of shoulds with your parents. Like shame? Yeah, shame, yeah. Who they, They've internalized an idea of where they wanted you to be by the time you were in your 30s. Yeah. My parents have relaxed to some extent because I left the home and because I proved there were at least resources to help me with the things that I cannot do. Like, were they not in the picture? Because I think that was primarily their anxiety. But I think one of the primary errors of disabled parenting is that parents will generally offload their anxieties onto the child and then they will spend their lives feeling inadequate for not being able to fulfill those needs themselves. The parents will. Yeah, they will. And I don't, I don't think they do it consciously or on like or on purpose. I think it's just like a traditional parental anxiety. 
Yeah. I felt that when when I was living at home before I moved out, there were times where I knew that I wanted help with something, but I also felt that, I don't know, there's just like a different perception when your parents are the ones helping you. Um, it's one, one of the ones, I've probably talked about this before, but the one that really got to me was like, in the middle of the night if I needed help. Yeah. Like going to the bathroom or turning or something, calling and waking up my parents yeah. always felt terrible because they're, they're asleep and then they have to wake up and it's a whole thing. But when living here, I know that there is a person whose job it is is to basically be there in case someone needs help. Yeah. And so I don't feel, like, sometimes I'll still feel guilty, like, I sleep with a mask. And the other night, my mask was being so annoying, and I woke up, like, every 30 minutes because it kept shifting on my face and then, like, blowing into my eye, and I couldn't sleep. And I had to call twice to get someone to adjust it. And by the second time, I was sitting there basically being like, do you think I could sleep like this? Like, do you think... Maybe if I, like, put on some white noise or something, I'll be able to force myself back to sleep. And then ultimately deciding that there's no reason, like, that's what they're there for. But I still have a bit of that, like, the pangs of guilt for those types of things. And that's that was amplified to an extreme when I lived at home with my parents. I understand that, yeah. What is it for you mostly, do you think? Is it, like, meal prep still it's for sure uh meal prep that's a a huge anxiety that i have just thinking about you know changing my (laughs) the one of the main concerns about quitting my job and like moving into my own place it's not even like what will i do for work because i know generally you'll find a job by virtue of my work ethic and you have a good resume yeah, my, my resume is okay, but also my brain sort of gravitates like when I'm idle toward the kinds of problems that I like to solve within my profession. So I will eventually find some place where I'm happy or stable or whatever, steady. Yeah, but you'll be hungry. I'll be starving. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and I, I just like, especially now that I'm older and I can't really tolerate like a sustained shitty diet, I'm really scared of that. When you're living at home, do you ever feel like, are you just purely grateful that someone is cooking meals for you? Or do you ever go, I kind of wish I had control over what was on the menu? I do wish that for sure, because my parents definitely have like defaults that that are just, you know, a product of 30 years of eating similarly. Yeah. And it's not that they eat unhealthy, but they kind of do settle on a couple of dinner solutions that are totally lackluster in my personal opinion. Sorry, mom, I love you. No, I felt the same way with my parents. Like by the end of it, I, I was just like, I'm kind of bored of this mashed potatoes, meat, and some kind of mixed frozen vegetables. Like I'm, and now I eat everything. Like every week I'm trying some new restaurant in Ottawa. Ottawa has a pretty decent food scene, not to not to try to contend with Thunder Bay's per capita restaurant game. Oh, my friend called bullshit on that the other day. And he's like, 
Oh, he made a really dark joke that I shouldn't repeat, but he, he's like, yeah, you got that. You got that one uh, stat like totally wrong. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to call bullshit when I've never been to your hometown. That's one of my, one of the biggest guilts in our friendship is that I've never actually been to your hometown. There, you have no obligation to even think about Thunder Bay or care about it. I don't blame you. Uh, I, I'd still like to at least see what, where you came from, you know? You, you want to know the irony? I know my way around Ottawa a thousand times better than Thunder Bay. Because you can leave your house in Ottawa. Yeah, I've never explored my own hometown that I've lived in <laughs> cumulatively for like 25 years. Yeah, I don't expect it to be very accessible. Yeah. But to be fair, you've never been to my hometown. Like, Ottawa's not my hometown. So True. I wonder, like, I would like to do a survey of disabled people and, like, find out if, if um, because, like, <laughs> I'm really good at, like, three things. And those are three things that I've sort of trained myself my entire life to be good at. Okay. What's the first one? Well, so I'm good at doing schoolwork. Okay. So then that translates into being autonomous, like a, a good autonomous worker in an office environment with a creative component. Yeah. So I'm good at that. I'm good at my, you know, limited set of exercises that I can execute. Yeah. And I'm good at articulating opinions about media. Sounds like you're good at four things. Was that four things? No, that was three, but you're also good at counting. Oh, thank you, Tony. You're welcome. I'm flattered. That's not a compliment I hand out readily. Okay. But I don't have, like, I have no life skills. Yeah, I don't know if that's, is that true? Like, you've lived alone. By living alone, you have to have life skills. I, like, barely got by when I lived on my own. Like, I sustained myself on, like, Tim Horton's bagels and, like, school stress. Your food game was terrible. I'll attest to that. Like, yeah. every time I came over, there was craft dinner pots on the floor. But I don't think that's like a summative story of your life skills. I guess not. But I was just thinking, like, if you took like a, a broad survey of all the people that we went to school with at Carleton, they would probably attest to the same thing where like they are very like hyper apt at right one or two things and we if we listed everyone we went to school with we could probably even name those things but then it's those general life skills that we somehow vaguely associate with personhood i feel like i'm not really getting to the point no i i think it's true like i'm good at tech stuff Mm -hmm. and i'm good at managing my own care yeah i feel like that's be- because I'm good at that, that's why even with the quote, severity of my disability, uh-huh. I'm able to live alone independently. If I wasn't as good at that, I don't think I would be able to live alone. Um, and so I don't know, like, chicken or the egg on that one. But yeah, so I, I'm like really good at those two things and then garbage and everything else. But what do you think that is? You think that's because... I think we've talked about this before. I I think a lot about how when I run into a problem in software development, like that curiosity flag in my brain is flipped. And I start thinking like, what have other people done to solve this issue? And I go yeah. and I think, oh, I could do that. I could do X, Y, and Z. 
uh, it would probably only take me a week to learn how to do this. And then I could go implement that solution and it would probably suffice. And my mind is open and I feel sure and I want to pursue that solution. Like I, I, I will go do my research and then I will try to, I'll try to translate my newfound knowledge into a practical implementation. But in the physical world, I have virtually no confidence in my ability to do the very same thing. So when I think about is that trying, sorry, continue. I just don't necessarily oh, buy it. You don't think that's true? Maybe it's just it's only true of late because pandemic life has made it feel like the only real space that exists is my house and everything outside of it is theoretical <laughs> in some weird way. I think it's because in your software and your development work, you know that even if you don't know the solution right away, you're confident in your ability to fail enough times to get to a solution. But in real life, failure feels more real yeah. because you can't just like control Z your way out of it. But it's not only control Z, it's like I've been playing with computers my whole life and I associate... But you've been alive and disabled your whole life. Yeah, but I associate computers and technology with play. And I think you do too, to some extent. Yeah. And so play is like all about fiddling and experimentation. That's fair. I wonder why I don't regard the real world with the same philosophy. I think maybe it's like a consequence of being raised or incentivized with negative reinforcement rather than positive. You know, like if you don't learn how to put on your shoes one day, Joe, you'll end up uh, shoeless. <laughs> and it's like some bullshit like that. But that's how my dad thinks. He's like, he thinks about all the things, the bad things that can happen if you don't figure out your shit versus all the good things that could happen if you do figure out your shit. And I mean, that's incredibly vague. And maybe I'm totally derailing today's episode. I don't know. I, I Honestly, I feel like, because I kind of do view life as a bit of a playground and to the point where I've consciously wondered if it's unhealthy because sometimes I enjoy like chaos and I almost forget that there's a cause and effect and a consequence. What's an example of chaos that you've enjoyed recently? I don't know if it's just like purely an adrenaline thing, but I'll push myself to extremes that I shouldn't, even if it's just like like driving up a curb with one wheel just to like see how close to the edge of flipping my chair I can get. Like purely bananas and unnecessary and there's no real positive that comes out of it besides like a little bit of feeling alive. And I've thought about this a lot because I'm aware of it. I think it's because I don't want this to sound depressing, but like as a kid, my biological mom made a point and I think she was doing it in her best with her best intentions, but she made a point to constantly remind me that I was a dying child. You've told me this before. Right. And I think that it gave me a bit of a different outlook on life. So it has to, right? But I think what it did was it kind of made me cheesy. It sounds cheesy, but like 
live in the moment and just like be okay to fail because I'm already past my best before date. You know what I mean? I'm trying to frame this in a way where it actually sounds as positive as it feels. But essentially, I just feel like every day is a gift because my mom told me that it wasn't like or that it was, you know? And so for me, I'm really not as afraid to fail as a lot of people I know in similar circumstances because I feel like, I don't know, maybe it's super nihilistic, but... I think that's the opposite of nihilism. Really? Well, you're not saying you think that nothing matters. Right. I don't know what it is. It's 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 not that nothing matters. It's just that like you know, like that French phrase "case sera, sera," you know. And it, I don't know. I don't know. How to but I, that that sounds exhausting, to be honest. Like, well, it's not like a conscious. No, but I mean, like, if I had to constant, if I was constantly thinking, well, I should be dead. And I, yeah, but I don't consciously think that. Yeah. I think it's just ingrained in like my personality. So like I'm always just up for whatever. Doesn't matter if it doesn't go well. I don't care if I have a bad time because it's a new time. It's a new experience. That's kind of how I think. And I've obviously put myself in many bad situations or uncomfortable situations or, you know, but to me, I don't know. It, it sort of instilled in me. I feel like I fear what would happen if I don't do it more than what would happen if I do it and it doesn't work. Right. So you have like kind of a healthy FOMO. It's definitely, I don't know if it's healthy. It's a FOMO for sure. But I don't know if it's healthy because sometimes I do push myself into situations that aren't necessarily healthy or I just um, put myself in situations because I feel alive or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, but do you have no history of substance abuse you have no history of um, erratic behavior. Uh, you've never really sustained any major in- injuries. Sounds like most of your injuries were inflicted upon you by reckless attendance. Um, I mean, I broke my ankle at hockey once. Oh, that was, wasn't that fucking someone else's fault, though? No, I mean, we crashed into each other. We were both just kind of tunnel visioned on the play. And I don't know, again, sort of not staying within a potential limit i don't really know it, i have i've never been able to fully qualify it i fucking participated in one of those floor hockey games and i quit like 15 minutes in because i was like yeah. i do not want to lose a fucking foot pedal to this yeah it, <laughs> it, it does take a, a special kind of insanity to do it it did feel like a big huge sword fight like everyone was like wondering if their chair could outdo the other one's chair yeah. And I've never experienced that before. It's It was very strange. Well, this year, like, we didn't play last year, obviously. And now I'm coming back after a break. And I'm not sure if my hand is up to the task of driving my chair well enough to be good enough that I feel like it's worth my time and be good enough that I don't hurt myself or anyone else. And... I'm sort of in that same dilemma right now where it's like, am I going to push myself further than I should because it's better than not doing it? Well, what is the consequence of going further than you should? 
I mean, I could hurt myself. I could hurt someone else. I get, yeah, I, I, I suppose so. Fair enough. I, I mean, I, I'll be honest. I, I don't see the appeal of that for hockey. I know, and that, that is like a, a fundamental character difference between us. I just like I, you're in like a fucking five hundred pound, you know, really fast. You're not going to be able to sell me on why it's not fun. No, of course. I just. It just seems so goddamn reckless. Everything that you're going to say about how not fun it is is why it's fun for me. <laughs> I Okay, like I could see why it's fun. Like I understand like competition and sport and whatnot. And I, to be fair, I don't think I had an optimal setup with a stick on the tip of my joystick. Oh, it sounds like a little bit of you wants to try again. I, the, way, the way people drove in, in, during the game that I participated in, like they were really wanting to eat some pavement. It's, it seemed like. Do you think it's because you don't think you'd be good at it? Like if you thought you would be good at it, you'd probably want to do it, right? I, I guess so. I suppose I do have an ego in that way. Well, no, I don't think it's an ego. I think it's what we were talking about. Like you are more risk averse or like afraid to fail. Well, I, like I've hurt myself a number of times physically. Yeah. I used to have a pool. Like I've, I've had the thought like, oh my God, I'm going to drown while swimming before. Yeah. And, and like I've, I've sprained an ankle while walking in the tunnels and a good like kilometer away from a chair I could sit at. You know, I've done things to myself while being pigheaded and idiotic. I've <laughs> I've lost control of my walker, like while you know going down a very very steep hill. And I've thought, Jesus Christ, I'm going to I'm going to fucking smack into somebody who's just trying to go to class. Did you control it the whole way down? I I I, I definitely fucking just uh, narrowly caught like the corner of a locker and then like swung perpendicular and then luckily caught my balance before I before I just fell the re- the rest of the way down cardiac hill. That would be a really funny sport. Like you just put a bunch of wheelies on walkers and you put them on a super steep ramp and just whoever's still standing at the bottom wins. Tony, it's terrifying. So, but see, that's what I mean. Like that chaos that I'm excited about that's terrible because I'm more just excited to watch a bunch of wheelies fall <laughs> I guess so that goes back to the um like we have a, uh, of a we have a, a a general resentment of people thinking that wheelies should be subjected to zero danger yeah well I think it's somewhat natural to be risk averse when you live a riskier life like there are many things the average wheelie is exposed to in their daily life yeah. that is higher risk than the equivalent thing for an able-bodied person. So naturally, people would want to mitigate risks that are in their control because so many risks are outside of their control. That's why floor hockey doesn't really make sense to me because I generally know most wheelies uh, to drive cautiously. Because most people in power chairs are self-conscious of how difficult it is to drive the chair. And one of the reasons that they've been prescribed the chair is because of 
the conveniences that it offers in that realm. Yeah. So then you sign up to a hockey league and suddenly you drive around like you're a fucking Formula One driver <laughs> and you take every corner as hard as you can and you override the firmware so you can like tip it over quicker. I I once like lost control of my chair and hit a concrete wall full speed. It was terrifying, but it's also like pure adrenaline. I don't know how to describe it. Like, it's chaotic and it's insane, but that's what draws me to it. And that is kind of the crux of what I think. Would you own a lot of muscle cars if you were able-bodied? Yeah. Really? I'd be a definite car guy. Yeah, that's disappointing. That's disappointing? Yeah. (laughs) Cars are dumb. Why? Because no one needs Your dad cars. has a muscle car. Public transportation. Uh, and, and, yeah, that's right. He does have a muscle car. It's like the one remaining thread of his youth. Yeah. Like, to be fair, I would also, my favorite, if I could only own one car that I yeah. could actually drive, it would be a Tesla. But yeah. there's something about muscle cars that are just, it's a relic, but it's also just that sound when you turn it on. Like, I don't know what to tell you, man. How many women play floor hockey with you guys uh a significant amount like it's the ratio is like pretty 50, high 50 like 40 60 yeah maybe maybe and, and 50, do, 50. Do, the, do the women do the women drive recklessly too some of them do yeah <laughs> yeah for sure wow as as you play you kind of know who's got control and who doesn't so then if uh, a person who doesn't have control has the ball and they're coming towards you. Yeah. Sometimes as a, when I'm playing defense, I'm just like, you can have this one. I'm letting you go. Cause it's not worth me getting bowled over. You know what it is? I'm afraid of being killed by my own power chair. It is scary. Yeah. I'm afraid one day I'm going to be doing a complicated transfer and I'm going to like at some point be standing holding on to something and then need to drive my chair toward myself. Yeah. And while I do that, I'm going to have the chair on the wrong speed setting and I'm going to drive the fucking power chair directly into me. And it's going to hit me like a bowling ball to a fucking bowling pin. And I'm just like, you know, my knees are going to bend the, the wrong direction and I'm just going to crumble like a big ball of osteoporosis and <laughs> I'll, I'll have died. Yeah. In a Cronenbergian fashion. And unfortunately, I would laugh hysterically if I said <laughs> That's the thing. That's the thing is that if they, if they explicitly described the manner of my death in my fucking uh, uh, eulogy or whatever obituary, like all the attendants that I was close to at Carlton and you and people that I've dated and my closest friends who knew me in university and how I drove, they'd all be like, yeah, of course that's how he fucking died. Yeah. So then, so I'm going to go and play wheelchair floor hockey, (laughs) which is, it's a crippled death pit. Like, (laughs) like, (laughs) I'm not going to try to sell you on it. (laughs) It is a crippled death pit a little bit. People have flipped their chairs. People have broken stuff. People have, been like wheeled out to the hospital i I can't i can't defend it in that sense if you if you flip your power chair on yourself no one can save you (laughs) like you're (laughs) you're fucked like it's 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 disability final destination 
I've had the same thought about my cat. Like sometimes I'm like, one day he's going to jump up and he's going to like draw, he's going to hit my joystick and then my tail is going to start shooting towards the door and he's yeah. just going to look like, why are we driving so fast towards the door? <laughs> yeah. And then we're both going to die. He might jump off eventually and then just like, look at me like, why did you do that? Yeah. I'm afraid that I'm going to go <laughs> like <laughs> on a first date, like along the canal, mm-hmm. like with a woman. And we're going to like this other. story already because it means you're in Ottawa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's the plan. And we're going to be walking along the canal. It'll be a fucking summer's Eve in August. Okay. She'll be like, I like Jamie. You know, he made all the right jokes and he likes all the right movies. She'll say it out loud. You'll get <laughs> yeah. self-conscious and drive into the canal. <laughs> no, she's going to be like, how about I sit on your lap and we drive home together? Uh-huh. And she's going to sit on my lap and then be like, I know how to drive a power chair. And you won't know how to say no because you like her. Yeah. And she'll be like, if I grab the joystick, you know, maybe it will be, you know, a hint. For later. Where you got your joystick. Yeah. And then what if she doesn't realize, you know, the relative power of the fucking thing? Mm-hmm. And just like, we're, and I'm going to try to t- take over. And then there'll be like a spastic episode and we'll both drive into the drink together. How hilarious would it be? Or how shitty would you feel if this all happened? But instead, it turns out she's just really good at driving your chair, way better than you after 30 some odd years. Would that humiliate you? No, I expect people to be better drivers than me on all fronts, no matter how much experience I have. Yeah, I don't. My chair is tuned to an impossible degree that like, anytime someone's like, I'll just drive your chair, I'm like, trust me, it's not that I don't trust you. It's just you won't be. Like, I have to move my joystick maybe a centimeter to full speed. How can you describe it to people? Like people wanting to drive your chair is like, if I went up to my able-bodied friend and was like, I'm going to use your phone for a day. And like, I'm going to see like, but I think the idea of somebody using my phone for a day is mortifying and driving your chair is also kind of the same thing. Your phone? Yeah, my phone. Why is that mortifying? Because you don't want them to see your pictures? My messages, I don't want them to like see my messages or like my my group chat content. Not that there's anything bad, right. but it's me. It's not them. Like they shouldn't see that shit. Fuck off. Doesn't bother me at all. Really? Yeah, you, you can have my phone. You can look through the messages. Um, there's some stuff you probably wish you didn't see, but that's your fault for looking. <laughs> You're like, I'm proud of my dick pics. <laughs> it's not that I'm proud of it. It's just that I'm good at Photoshop. <laughs> I have a good one that's me next to a grain of rice. <laughs> Speaking of the size of your penis, Tony, do you want to talk about this massive movie that we watched today for the podcast? A little. <laughs> what did we watch, Tony? Misery. What is misery about? I want you to hit this one because misery was what I felt while watching this movie. And I think you felt something different. I did feel something different. I like this movie a lot. Okay. So Misery is a simple film about an author who... I feel like saying it's a simple film just like exonerates it from everything I disliked about it. Really? Are we going to argue? 
No. Are you sure? I'm not in an argumentative mood. I'm ready for anything. <laughs> let me let me describe what misery is. Yeah. So it's a kind of a classical Stephen King novel about a writer, a talented, heroic, dignified, manly writer played by James Caan, who is uh, on the precipice of finishing a wonderful novel that is a deviation from a kind of uh, salacious series that he's been working on. And he wanted to break free and write his great American novel instead. And so he he does so uh, at a cabin in a remote uh, wintry area and on his way back into town to meet his publicist and reap the reward of his new and brilliant earth shattering new book. He gets into a car accident and his car um, is buried under heaps and heaps of incredibly soft photogenic pillowy snow. And he gets pulled out of the wreckage of his vehicle by a nurse, Kathy Bates, who puts uh, puts him on her shoulders and uh, valiantly climbs a massive snowy hill up to her own cabin and throws him in bed and uh, <laughs> like puts his legs in casts. How many of these details and these adjectives are you using because of what I just said? <laughs> because I just want to make sure that everyone gets the picture of what this fucking movie is, right? Uh-huh. Okay, so... Kathy Bates brings home her prized author, who she's actually a huge fan of, uh, and she kind of repairs him. She does some uh, off-the-cuff ad hoc orthopedic surgery, and uh, the next time we see James Caan, he's sort of seated upright in bed with his legs in casts, and he's like, oh, what the fuck happened? And that's sort of the intro to the film, where he, uh, Kathy Bates greets him and says, I'm your biggest fan. Uh, you've been in a car accident. I've repaired your broken legs, but you're going to need months to heal. And I'm going to be the one to heal you. And by the way, uh, we can't get back into town because there's been a crazy blizzard. So you're mine now. Yeah. Up until that point, I felt like it was a good movie. The parts that I didn't like were more... To me, it was just boring. It was so slow. And I just wasn't invested. Let me Let me start with what I liked about it. I liked how tense the whole movie felt. It was very good at, like, I felt anxious while watching it, which wasn't a good feeling. I didn't enjoy feeling anxious, but credit to the movie for making me feel that. I've never heard the term enjoyable anxiety. Uh, I like, there's an anxiety that I enjoy, like the anxiety of, like, a first date. Oh, no, that's, those are called butterflies. No, but, like, the stress, like, you're, your palms get sweaty and you're like, am I doing this right? Are they going to like me? Yeah. Am I going to like them? And just, you know, like trying to find that joke in the awkward tension. I like that. I but this it. was more like stress. What were you afraid of? In this movie? Yeah. I don't think I was afraid. I think it was more just that I, I like the characters. I like the tone and the pace. It was consistent. You said it was too slow, though. It was too slow for me. Okay. Like, it was consistent. I think, objectively, it was good, but what I took out of it was, like, I was like, is it over yet? The thing that I didn't like about it, when they were trying to sell the the nurse caregiver, Uh Kathy Bates, as 
a villain. It never, like the music that they were using to try to get me to feel these things never felt earned in terms of the dialogue or how I actually felt. Like it felt like the music was preemptively telling me how to feel. Ah, yeah. uh, That is a trend with modern films that aren't Marvel movies, which is sort of an absence or like a lower key score. Because I do think that modern audiences are sensitive to the presence of a score that heavily shapes their emotions toward a particular scene. So you don't usually see like particularly notable melodic scores unless you're watching a Star Wars film or like a simple action movie or something like that. Yeah, and I think it's I had almost the same adverse reaction as I do when I'm hearing like a laugh track nowadays. That is interesting. That's really interesting. It's kind of funny how like a cinema evolves, like the way that we sort of capture emotions on screen, like through through an actor or through staging or um, cinematography and music. It gets more and more and more subtle over time. Like you look at movies in the 40s and 50s, there's a lot of overacting and a lot of very pronounced, like obvious archetypes. And they become that way because of, you know, familiarity. They become part of the grammar of cinema, things that we learn to associate with movies and therefore get tired of. I also think it's, it's almost like what we've talked about with disability, where the first few characters of an archetype yeah. have to be like the most boiled down version of it yeah. so that it's understandable and relatable and digestible to the viewer. Yeah. I actually agree with you about the music and about the sort of unfair positioning of Kathy Bates as a villain very prematurely. Yeah. Way before I had any opinion of her really, besides like, I knew that it was going to be a thriller. Yeah. By the way, we should say like, we tried to watch a thriller because it's Halloween. Yeah. And we're going to do a thriller kind of movie this week and next week. We probably would have done more, but I hate scary movies you hate scary movies so after watching um misery would you say this qualifies as a horror movie not horror thriller maybe horror to me is like just trying to get your adrenaline up thriller Mm. is like trying to get your mind into second gear Mm. i don't know none of the thriller parts of this movie hooked me like i feel like i already knew kind of where the movie was going yeah so this movie uh, is not very fair to its female characters. And I know I say that a lot. Yeah, well, there's only two, but they're both the worst. They are both like pretty poorly treated. Poorly treated as in poorly treated by the filmmakers and not by the other actors or not by the other characters. Well, the, their characterization is poor. Yeah. How do I, how should I approach this first? So... I'm going to say a couple of things that I liked at the outset of the film. Um, I think one of the reasons why this movie felt tired to you, if I can speak to, speak for you for a second, Tony, is that this movie reminds us a lot of Run in that James Caan sort of gradually realizes that his caretaker does not have his best interests at heart and that his caretaker is deeply lonely um, enough to try to prevent him from healing properly and to um, emotionally abuse him and to confine him to his bedroom. And so 
Kathy Bates initially seems very friendly, very warm, like naturally caring, clearly a competent nurse. She seems to really love James Kahn's work as an author. She engages him uh, in full conversation about his books and the aspects of them that she likes. And she seems to be a very smart person as well. Like, I don't know, Kathy Bates as an actress is incredible. I think she's the star of this film in every possible way. And I don't get to see her very often in movies or TV shows. So watching this movie again, it was like a pleasure to realize that she's as deeply talented as I always knew her to be. The role felt cartoony to me. It did, unfortunately. Even just like some of the camera work that they were doing Uh when she's like blowing up and getting angry. Yeah. With like these downward angle Dutch tilts and stuff. Yeah. Well, she like when she transitions from being like an adoring fan to like forcing James Caan to write more or destroying his his manuscript or demanding that he eat or threatening him with violence if he doesn't comply to her request to change the content of his writing, et cetera, et cetera. Like she is, she's a psychopath, uh, a physical and emotional abuser, and she's, her moods are manic. So the movie is the roller coaster of Kathy Bates emotions. And really all James Caan ever does is like react to the craziness and try not to put any fuel on the fire. I related to that. That is why I yeah. felt like it became a disability movie for me. Oh. The kind of almost customer service way that I feel like I sometimes have to handle interactions with attendants or more so the management, where it's just like one day an attendant's like, hey, Anthony asked for this and I didn't like it when he asked me to wash his face twice. And then you're like, is this going to go nowhere or is head office going to say, Anthony, you can no longer ask to wash your face. And you just kind of have to, you're, you're like slowly walking on thin ice. Can you play that um, appreciation clip? Any other crucial requirements that need satisfying? Would you like a tiny tape recorder? Or how about a handmade set of writing slippers? I'll just, the paper will be fine. Are you sure? Because if you want, I'll bring back the whole store for you. Annie, what, what's the matter? What's the matter? I'll tell you what's the matter. I go out of my way for you. I do everything to try and make you happy. I feed you, I clean you, I dress you, and what thanks do I get? Oh, you bought the wrong paper, Annie. I can't write on this paper, Annie. Well, I'll get your stupid paper, but you just better start showing me a little more appreciation around here, Mr. Man. Mr. Man. Uh, When he screams there, she just like throws a big stack of paper onto his lap which is, you know, still healing from having broken his femur. So, you know, it's an act of violence. I I really like that she calls him Mr. Man in that scene, because I actually think that James Caan as a character is woefully underdeveloped. Um, I think he's, I think this is like a kind of allegory for Stephen King's like resentment of his editor or potentially like female partners, <laughs> Throughout the course of his career as a writer, are you postulating, or is there like has he talked about that he doesn't like his editor? I'm just postulating because um, 
because there are some interesting developments in this movie that, that support my stance. But anyway, um, so in that scene, it kind of reaffirms what you were saying, that Kathy Bates is abusive in the traditional manner that a care environment can be, where they make you feel guilty for your necessities. But at the same time, I do feel like her villainy is is problematic. It's definitely unearned at the beginning, but then it's pretty earned. Well, so here's the thing. Um, Wait, in the clip that we just played, if you have to pick a side, whose side do you pick? Well, in that particular case, it, it, it is a um, irrefutable instance of Kathy Bates being emotionally abusive. Okay. Uh, and the whole point of the movie is that she she is a monster. I think it's a it's a commentary on uh, unhealthy dynamics between author and um, audience, and like King feeling frustrated with having to pander to his readership uh, because throughout the film, um, Kathy Bates makes a number of suggestions to James Caan about where he should take his books and he should revive certain characters that he's killed. And she actually threatens violence against him for a plot twist in his current manuscript that she totally disapproves of. But then there's this weird sort of angle where um, he starts to listen to her criticisms and like seems to be receptive to them. And I don't think it's necessarily like just him conceding to his captor so that he can stay alive for a couple more days. It's kind of like, that, that's exactly what I thought it was. Well, on the surface, it, it it is. But then there's a portion of the film, like through montage, where he actually quite happily writes a revised manuscript, manuscript, like with Kathy Bates's suggestions in mind. So that's why I wondered if if he was thinking about his relationship with his editor and how she puts him through hell. And, you know, he feels like he breaks himself just to get a a good draft out of his system. Is Stephen King's editor female? I don't know. I'm just, I'm just bullshitting. But so here's it. Here's the thing. Like the casting of Kathy Bates is very deliberate. She's not classically like Hollywood, beautiful leading lady. Like in this film, she's positioned as like a lonely divorcee, like kind of like a shrew. Yeah. That very archetype is enough for the movie to suggest that she's a threat to James Caan at the start of the film, which I think is why... A threat? Yeah, well, maybe not like a threat, but like perverse or um, unhealthy or, you know, like poorly socialized. It definitely felt like they were juxtaposing his... He, he the writer, felt in another class, in another world, and maybe yet hadn't even considered that his, quote, best fan or greatest fan yeah. was someone of this ilk. Yeah, like like a lonely uh, divorcee living in the woods. With a pet pig. With a pet pig, that's the other thing. Named Misery. She doesn't have a traditional, you know, domestic cat or dog. She keeps a pet pig. And also she has like a, a heavier set body type. So the the adage that, you know, our pets resemble their owners is quite clear. 
And so the movie like has nothing but disdain for Kathy Bates from the outset. And yet she is what drives the film. She's like wonderfully like, I don't know. She's just a fantastic actress. And the movie is kind of this power struggle between a newly injured wheelie and this woman who um, has had a history of failed relationships and feels ostracized and lonely And she just wants to make a connection with her favorite author. You're sympathizing with her, in my opinion, way too much. I do. I do sympathize with Kathy Bates in this movie. She's a monster. Uh, I don't know, man. She's literally a monster. You find out at the end of the movie, she's a baby murderer. They call it the, yeah, the, the newspaper calls her a dragon lady. And yeah, she she apparently went to trial for allegedly killing a number of babies in the maternity ward prematurely. Uh-huh. And so it reminded me of the like nurse Wetlaufer in Canada. There's this woman in Canada from uh, uh, eastern provinces who uh, killed a number of elderly patients by giving them an overdose of pain meds. And do you sympathize with her as well? I do not. She's like a stone cold sociopath, but her, I guess, pathology is quite similar to Kathy Bates's character. So why do you sympathize with Kathy Bates' character? Because when she is not uh, in the throes of a temper tantrum, she's quite an interesting person. Is she? I think that's the full extent of it. To be honest, I just this is she interesting. What makes her in- she has a pet pig? <laughs> she has a pet pig. She was able to uh execute like a-, a complex orthopedic surgery on the fly. Was she able to execute it? As soon as we saw his legs post surgery, yeah, they make my legs look like gymnasts. Yeah, they it looks like two slabs of like raw uh red meat, his legs do. And his feet as well. It's disgusting. Actually, that's another part of this movie that I enjoyed. The body horror of the disability element. It does not shy away from that. So like I have a number of experiences post-surgery where I felt like my casts existed not only to keep like all my bones in place, but to protect me from the image of my own body. <laughs> and so in this movie, there are no there are no casts. And it's horrifying. And I was like, oh, well, I mean, there's a little bit of truth in that. It is quite horrifying to have your femurs broken and rotated and your hamstrings extended and your feet fucking reconstructed. Yeah, I can relate to that. I definitely support you in your sympathy with his legs. But like, so this movie is saying that that divorcees who live in a remote cottage are most likely fucking needy psychos. That's not what it's saying. It's saying this one person was an ED psycho. I guess so. I Kathy Bates just humanized the fuck out of her, and I just I I wanted her. She definitely humanized her. I'll give yeah. you that. Like she um she does seem like a full person. You can kind of understand where she's coming from, and you can a little bit sympathize with her, but. If okay, if Kathy Bates's character was a real person, yeah, would you hang out with her? Mm, I probably would. You would? I I know. Okay, okay. So I know there. She murders babies. 
But that's the that's kind of the cowardice of this film. Okay, wait, wait, no, wait, wait. If you hang out with Kathy Bates, and I was like, dude, you need to stop <laughs> hanging out with Mrs. Bates. And you're and you're like, no, but you don't. You just don't. When she's not murdering babies, she's interesting. <laughs> no, but that's the thing. Like, you think I'm going to be like, okay, bro, good call, well played. The movie doesn't show her killing babies so i'm not like let let me finish because i'm not saying i'm just gonna clip parts of this and just turn it into i sympathize with baby killers (laughs) i'm gonna like stitch it together please don't it's gonna be you going i sympathize with baby killers let me let me just get this point across okay okay like i i do not okay so Disclaimer, I do not murder babies. I don't <laughs> condone the killing of babies. I would never kill a baby. I would never want a baby be killed. Your impression of me sounds like Donald Trump. Thank you. Uh, um, but okay, so here's the thing. Like as the violence escalates throughout the film, like Kathy Bates takes a sledgehammer to James Conn's feet. But she's interesting. Now, hold on, just let me finish. <laughs> she she shoots the local sheriff with a double-barreled shotgun. Interesting choice. <laughs> she does a number of awful things, but the thing for which she is known, like historically, the, the character, uh, the thing that establishes her as like a, a genuine psycho is that she murders babies. But the movie never actually shows her or flashes back to those. To those moments and it's like it, james Conn finds out about it because she she keeps she, let me finish i can't sit here and let you talk about how she's like we never found out maybe the babies were asking to be murdered <laughs> the movie doesn't actually ever show her killing any children which is interesting to me because i i think it's a way of further robbing her of like some kind of valid person or womanhood because it's like she doesn't bring life into the world. She actually takes it away. Um, and so she's a dragon. She's not a person. So it like her baby killing is to sort of justify the manner in which she is killed in the film because eventually James Conn, uh, after he heals for a sufficient amount of time, uh, after having his feet sledgehammered, he actually takes a typewriter and bashes her over the head violently, like very incredibly violently. And I don't think the movie would have been able to do that if they didn't establish her as a fucking baby killer. But it also is too afraid to depict that uh, on screen. So it's like very, you know what I mean? It feels gross to me. I agree. Killing babies is gross. This is hard for me to convey, but like this movie keeps depicting uh, the the only two female characters in it as like these sexless, nagging, um, moody, awful creatures. Even the wife of the sheriff who's looking for James Conn, yeah. like they drive around in the sheriff's van together and there's a scene where she touches her husband's inner thigh. She's kind of like, all right, we've had a full day of looking for him. Like, let's go home and have some 
alone time together and he's like woman i'm trying to work and he's like stop doing that and he he continu- he continues driving and there's also a scene in the middle of the film where james con like knows that kathy bates is unstable and that she has the potential to be very abusive but this is before she commits any true act of violence and he's trying to incapacitate her with the sedatives that she gives him for his pain so he collects them in a pocket and then he tries to like he stages a romantic dinner between the two of them where they have wine and meatloaf and in this scene like Kathy Bates is thrilled to have an opportunity at a date with James Caan. And she, she talks to him about her ex-husband and what a awful grief it was that he left. And those scenes are well-written. Like when she expresses her grief, it feels real. It's not the exacerbated rejection of a, of a psychopath. It's like how grief actually feels. <clears throat> and so um, he tries to drug her. And he fails. And in this scene, like she gets all dolled up for James Caan and her dress looks like an extension of the upholstery of her living room. Like it's it's like sexless and boxy. And she's sort of seen to be uh, an anomaly. Like James Caan should never consider her attractive or pay her any kind of romantic respect. But then she's also the best actress in the movie like again there's a there's a clip that i included of her talking about this very thing about how illogical it was for her to expect for him to reciprocate toward her because she's not a movie star and i thought what an odd line to say that she's not a movie star annie what is it the rain sometimes it gives me the blues When you first came here, I only loved the writer part of Paul Sheldon. But now I know I love the rest of him, too. I know you don't love me. Don't say you do. You're a beautiful, brilliant, famous man of the world, and... I'm not a movie star type. You'll never know the fear of losing someone like you if you're someone like me. Why would you lose me? The book's almost finished. So yeah, she's like, she's casted as the other Right. And I, I thought how curious it was that she said, I'm not the movie star type because he's an author. So she could have said, like, you know, I'm not the type to be part of high society or to I'm not worthy of your elk or class or whatever. But she, she says movie star. And that reads like the casting director deliberately choosing Kathy Bates because she's not a movie star type. But in fact, in this movie, she's quite beautiful. It's just that the film never presents her as such. She's always presented as a lonely monster. She's a monster, though. But but she's a she's a monster, like only in the scenes where like it's necessary for violence to occur. What do you mean necessary? 
I I don't know, like for the sake of the pacing of a thriller or whatever, like when she loses her temper um, and and, and emotions are high, she does become a psycho. But in in the moments when uh, things are are dialogue heavy, which is a majority of the film because it's, it's a bottle film, it occurs almost entirely in one room. She's kind of a human being. And so it's just this movie has such a disdain for for her and it it has to in order to sell the premise but i i just i don't know i just was in her fucking camp the whole time i agree with parts of what you're saying i agree with the fact that the movie was overselling her villainy i don't think that it was fully earned at the beginning but then i think she does enough eventually she like breaks his legs on purpose she like purposely hurts him physically emotionally um and like maybe it's because she isn't well socialized and doesn't know how to express her feelings and control her outrages but to me that's not enough to win her over as a good person i i don't think i'm arguing that she's a good person i think i'm just saying that there's a, a disconnect between uh, Kathy Bates's performance and the characterization of her in the script. And it's kind of like a similar exercise that I go through whenever I watch The Sopranos, where, and this is a reach, I know, but Tony Soprano's character is quite often shown to be like an absolute uh, ruthless, self-serving, narcissistic psychopath. Yeah. And yet... Gandolfini's performance, like in the moments, in the familial moments of the show, he has such concern for his daughter and his son, and he has such he has such loyalty to Carmela and the contents of his marital of his marital squabbles. They feel so real to some extent, and the way that his anger manifests, it fe- it's fully three dimensional, and he seems to be as an actor such a, a caring and compelling individual. And I connect with him a lot. And I do the same with Kathy Bates. <laughs> you connect with Gandolfini or Tony Soprano? Gandolfini is, is what I think I do. I admire him as an actor. Yeah, of course. But that doesn't mean Tony Soprano is in whole a good person. No, of, because of course he isn't. But... um. Yeah, you know, like that dissonance, like the performance humanizes them to the point where I'm sitting here trying to tell you that the more interesting part of misery is Kathy Bates. Well, it is for sure. I would agree with that. I think that without Kathy Bates, this movie is a complete flop. Like she's the main character in the movie. So and because it's there's really just two main characters, Kathy Bates is a main and then what is the dude's name? James? James Kahn. Yeah, so he's a very, like, up there secondary. I don't think his performance is phenomenal in any way, but it's enough to carry Kathy Bates or let her shine. Yeah, he, like, he's mostly just there to, like, react in utter shock and convey to the camera, like, this bitch is fucking crazy. Yeah, but I think he does that. She is crazy, though. I, I, I still, I've, I agree that Kathy Bates is able to breathe life into her and breathe humanity into her, and that makes you 
maybe understand where she's coming from with her outbursts and her violence. But to me, actions speak louder than words and kind of defines her in this role. Like the fact that she physically abuses someone, even if you can say, yeah, but I understand based on how much her mother loved her, whether or not she should, like, then it makes sense that he would, she would drop a book on his lap or something. Doesn't feel like enough of a justification to excuse someone. Like, if you're standing trial for committing a crime, the judge doesn't go, did your mother love you? <laughs> yeah, of course. And I, I guess I'm trying to find subtext in order to, you know, validate Kathy Bates. Um, oh, like I don't think you need to validate her. I think she does that on her own. Like, I do think she is the best part of this movie. But even just the way that she says to James Caan, like, basically saying, like, you have no idea the privilege that you occupy just by being you. That was an interesting line. Yeah. I've, I really connected with that line. Just the idea of, you know, feeling like society has put you in another lower class by virtue of things that are maybe outside of your control. Again, not murdering babies. That's in your control. Right. But like, you know, she was more than likely based on the movie Born at a Disadvantage and grew up at a disadvantage and never really was able to break out of that. Yeah. Hurt people hurt people. Right. But that, because that's a trend or a saying, doesn't mean that it's okay. No, of course not. I I could just envision a version of this movie where she's not a psychopathic killer. You know, James Caan actually listens to her and doesn't think less of her, doesn't thumb his nose at her when she tells him that she uses spam to infuse her uh, roast beef and make it taste so much better, (laughs) or like doesn't turn his nose at like various aspects of small town living, the ceramic dolls she keeps around, or not dolls, but ceramic figurines she keeps around her apartments with various ways that she decorates her place. The movie seems to regard those little details with disdain as well. There's just a certain dismissiveness in the film. And James Caan is the hero simply because he is a writer and because his condescension and his entitlement is so low key. You can barely accuse it of being there. You have to read into the movie to see it. I don't think that's why he's a hero. I think he's a hero because he survived the murderous rampage of an insane baby killer. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's very true. No, you're right. Kathy Bates is awful. I don't even know if I'd go as far as saying she's awful. It's just that I definitely don't. If she was a real life person, would you actually be defending her this much? No, but think about Hannibal Lecter. He's a good guy for sure. No, no, no. But but Hannibal Lecter is allowed to be an anti-hero. He's allowed to be a patriarchal, uh, positive influence on Clary Starling. He's allowed to care about her and to guide her. And at many points to be the smartest person in the room. At the end of The Silence of the Lambs, when you realize that he's escaped uh, captivity and that he's thwarted his warden, you are happy. You're like, yeah, woohoo. Like, Anthony Hopkins is the best. Like, this movie's awesome. 
in Misery, Kathy Bates is routinely humi- humiliated just for being a lonely woman. And then at the end of the film, no, not for just being a lonely woman. It's for physically abusing a man. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, I mean, that does happen. <laughs> but <laughs> I'd love to see you in court as a lawyer defending a guilty person. <laughs> just like, but yeah, but like, yeah, that does happen. But when he's not spitting in customers' foods at Burger King, he's actually going to night school and trying to better himself. <laughs> <laughs> but you see what I'm saying? Like, the script doesn't like Kathy Bates. Like, yeah. even in the small details, it, it, like, thinks that she's sexless and ugly. And it's interesting. Like, I think we're thinking about this from two different angles. Like, you're thinking about it from the script, and I'm thinking about it from suspending my disbelief enough to believe that this was a real thing that occurred. Yeah. The, the text of the film versus subtext. Right. So I'm like, if this is a real event that happened, mm-hmm. would I be on board with Kathy, Kathy's character? And obviously the answer is no. Yeah. And you're like, if we were to rewrite this, would we try to make Kathy, Kathy's character sympathetic? sympathetic yeah yeah and it, and then there could be small ways in which you know james con actually um grows as a person and th- 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 that's the other thing is that he at the end of the film con says that his experience with with uh kathy was traumatizing but he thinks he might now be a better writer he fucking murders her like with a the typewriter he smashes her over the head in real time in full view premeditated yeah her murder is in full view and yet uh he still comes out the hero it's it's still seen as justified because of all the things that she does to to him and to the sheriff you don't think it's justified I don't know. I th- it would be cool if by the end of the movie we could almost perversely root for her in the same way that we root for so many fucking anti-heroes who are male in like all of entertainment. Yeah, I'll agree with that. That would be a cool movie. I think this maybe is like a fundamental difference and an interesting one and one that I don't want to change. The difference between how you review a movie and how I do, I feel like you review it for the subtext and I review it for the text. Yeah. And I'm just like, this is what the movie is, so did I like the story? Yes or no? And you're like, this is what the movie is. Is it what I wanted the movie to be? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And there are no rules for, for storytelling. No. And so the movie, like when I say the movie should be X, Y, or Z, it shouldn't. Right. Your one man's opinion. Yeah, a story is quite often just the product of its time. So it's not surprising that Kathy Bates is 1 million percent unsympathetic in every possible way. I would like to see a movie where a a female lead does get to play a sympathetic anti-hero like Hannibal. That would be fantastic. Like someone who's one step ahead, clearly the smartest person in the room, um, and you're almost like, you wish you could root for her. That would be awesome. I just don't think that's what this movie was trying to be. Yeah. So Killing Eve might be uh, what you're talking about. Yeah. Potentially, potentially Jillian Anderson in The Fall. Um, 
I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure a number of, I'm sure this idea has been explored already. I'm just, I, I just want to see a show starring Kathy Bates. Can we talk about the disability for a bit? Okay. For maybe a few, two minutes, three. I related a lot with, I think I touched on this, but like, if I was in the bed, I would want to make her happy, make her like me, even if it's just to get a good breakfast the next morning. And I relate a lot with that as a client of personal care staff, for better or worse, where I think that I have to work so that the attendants like me because I think that I will get better service and be treated better if they do. And there was an element of him trying to do this throughout the movie where he's like placating her, it's fake, but it's still working. Even if she knows it's fake, she feels like she's connecting. And uh, I can relate to that. So he definitely has to social engineer in order to get the, the best possible care. Yeah. The other thing that I related to, and this is depressing, but his resignation, I completely related to. Like there are moments throughout the movie where he, where you just realize he's like, okay, fine. I guess I have to buckle down and write a novel while living with this woman in leg casts. And that's just the way it has to be for now. And you relate to that. Because we constantly have to resign ourselves to, to lackluster care situations or living situations. Yeah. All right. I'll settle for this. There's also, there's also parallels uh, uh, in this film with uh, quarantine life. For sure. Developing an unhealthy attachment to um, our escapism. Well, it's also just that, you know, we've talked about the parallel between quarantine life and disability life. So it's almost the same parallel. Do you ever feel like when when you're quote, resigning to something, do you ever feel like you almost consciously not even just resign to it, but trick yourself into thinking it's the best possible scenario. For sure. I've done it all throughout my life. Same. Yep. I've settled for situations like living quarters at Carlton. I should have fought harder to live in more accessible spaces. I didn't because I thought it wouldn't be worth it or um, that I could, that I, I should see it as a challenge to myself to try to subsist the way that I was. Yeah. Um I've I've taken jobs that were beneath my skill set and my education because I haven't had too much experience in the job world and I've felt very self-conscious about not having those prerequisites that we get in high school where you're in the service industry for an, an amount of time and you know how to work under pressure and work alongside able-bodied people in high pressure environments. And so I made concessions there where I took you know, internships that were beneath me. Do you think that you are able only in retrospect to know when those moments are? Or do you have any tools that can let you say, in the moment, this situation is something that I shouldn't have to accept? Maybe uh, with time, I have developed that foresight. But I think that for now, most of my examples are from 2020 vision because I've been treated better in my current environment or 
over time yeah. than I was at the point where I was tolerating the inadequate environment. That's how I feel too. And I'm still struggling to, because I, I sort of pride myself in my ability to see the silver lining and to seek out the silver lining and to sometimes make a silver lining when there isn't one. But I know that the flip side of that is sometimes not accepting or accepting something that I shouldn't accept. When something isn't ideal that could be changed, the wisdom to know with the difference is definitely the part that I struggle with the most. I think you're going to be gathering that wisdom for your whole life. I think so too, yeah. But I, I would like to think at least that I'm at least slowly and gradually getting better at picking up on the little cues internally that tell me, hey, this isn't right and I should do something about it rather than, hey, this is right, but at least it's not this, so it's good. Yeah. Pain is enlightened to perceive new periods of pain. Dang. Wisdom. Jamie's coming at folks. <laughs> yeah, but I also sympathize with baby killers, so what the fuck do I know? <laughs> yeah, but her pain is enlightened. <laughs> Uh, kill more babies kill, kill more babies alright bye everyone bye <laughs>